Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. We have so many guests on this show making a difference in our lives, making a difference all around the world with the expertise that they bring. And yet so many of you are reaching out to me saying, you want more. It's not enough, just what we're putting on these podcast episodes for you. And so I am here to extend a very warm welcome to you to our Difference Maker community, where you can join for as little as $5 a month to get all this extra content out the gate. You're going to get 30 plus minisodes of exclusive content not available for the regular podcast listeners and an exclusive minisode every month. And you'll get exclusive voting power to help us pick podcast topics and more. And that's with our changers tier. There's three different main tiers and then an extra uh, larger tier. But whatever tier that you join at, you will be included in this extra content. And I know that many of you are wanting to go a little bit deeper. And so even though it gets a little wild in there sometimes because of how deep we go, I want you to join us there. This extra content is very special. It means a great deal to me to be a part of this community with you. And I would love to just exchange uh, ideas or perspectives that you have around these different episodes. And that's the place where we do it. So please show up to our Difference Maker community. Give us $5 out of your pocket every month. And I think that you'll have a lot of fun in there because we do. And I would love for you to join us. So go to patreon.com slash a world of difference to join us there. Welcome to the A World of Difference podcast. I'm Lori Adams-Brown, and this is a podcast for those who are different and want to make a difference. Many of you have been following the events of what's been going on at Northern Seminary and care very deeply about what's been happening there. Um, and also many of you love Dr. Lynn Kohick, who is no longer there. Um, but as we were recording this podcast together, um, she had just announced that she's moving to Texas to a new position there. But um, just as a way of introduction, Dr. Kohick holds a PhD from University of Pennsylvania, and she's a professor of New Testament. She served as provost at both Northern Seminary and Denver Seminary, and she taught New Testament for over 15 years at Wheaton College. She's written many books, including on Ephesians. She's written a book, Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority, and Legacy in the 2nd through the 5th Centuries. Um, Also, she's written Philippians and the Story of God commentary. She's written about Ephesians and the New Covenant commentary and Women in the World of the Earliest Christians. But she's on today to talk about her latest book that she has written with Dr. Scott McKnight and Dr. Nijay Gupta. It's a second edition um, dictionary of Paul and his letters, which has just been published by University Press. And so she's on today to talk about that as well as just her journey as um, a professor and her love for the scriptures and what are some of the things she learned in this um, project that was very academic in nature, but also very personal to her as somebody who cares very deeply about including women around the world in the conversation around Paul and Paul's letters. And they were able to include more of those voices in this second edition, which is extremely exciting. So if you do not know of Dr. Lynn Kohick, I'm excited to introduce her to you today. I've been following her writing for a few years now and just super excited to have her today on the World of Difference podcast. So very, very warm welcome to Dr. Lynn Kohick. Hello, Dr. Kohick. I'm so excited to have you on the A World of Difference podcast today. 
How are you doing today, Dr. Kohek? Hi. Well, hi, Lori, and please call me Lynn. It feels a little <laughs> too... Uh, <laughs> I feel too important when you call me Dr. Kolick. That that's uh... oh, you're very important. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Oh, it's an honor, truly an honor to have you here. Um, I have been a fan for a while, reading your work, and um, yeah, you just have so many incredible contributions to um, the. New Testament study that many of us do as we prepare sermons, as we just are curious, as we learn. And I know that you've influenced many students in your time recently at Northern Seminary. And also congratulations on your new role. You're moving to Texas. I'm moving to Texas. I know for those people <laughs> from Texas, they keep saying you're coming home, you know? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I, I'm very excited to be moving to uh, Houston Christian University formerly Houston Baptist University. So some people might know it under that name and will be focused primarily on their doctorate of ministry program. So really excited to, to join that new team. Of course, we'll miss all my friends and colleagues at Northern. So, you know, there's a bit of bittersweetness with, with these things. But yeah, I'm very excited to move to Houston. I've been told you know, the summers are not great, but I just remind them that I've had to deal with Chicago winters. So it's sort of That's a, pick, right. yeah, you pick your poison. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you moved to Chicago. Were you in Colorado before? Is that right? Yeah. For a couple of years, uh, I was at Denver Seminary um, right there on the, kind of the front range and very beautiful uh, and enjoyed my time there very much. But most of my professional career was at Wheaton College which is also in the Chicago area. So yeah, I've at, at Denver as well as in Chicago. And then I grew up in Pennsylvania. So I've not really lived South. I've always had, mm -hmm. you know, the possibility at least of snow at Christmas. And uh, I think instead what I'll get are poinsettias that are actually planted in the ground <laughs> instead <laughs> of in containers for Christmas. I'm looking forward right. to it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it'll definitely be different down there. Texas is its own thing, but you'll have some good company down there with um, Dr. Beth Allison Barr and wonderful women that are also contributing to the conversation. So there's perks for oh, sure. <laughs> ab absolutely. And um, my good friend, uh, Dr. Sandra Glon, who's at DTS, um, she and I and another colleague from Wheaton, George Colansis, have uh, started a project called the Visual, it's, it's a visual museum. It's a museum that'll be online, free access, that shows photos of ancient artwork uh, for right now, just found in Italy, the frescoes, the mosaics, the catacomb art uh, sculptures um, that represent what women were doing in the ancient church. And so exciting. Yeah. So, so there's a lot, yeah, there's some, a, a lot of fun things happening in the area of scholarship and scholarship with women. And as you mentioned, Dr. Barr, Dr. Glon, they're all uh, located there in Texas. It's going to be a, a powerhouse. <laughs> it is. I'm excited. And, that is really great news. Yes. Oh my goodness. And there's so much scholarship that's come out in recent years about women in the early church. We just had Dr. Gupta on talking about his latest book, Tell Her Story. It's such a, <clears throat> a wonderful book. And like, you know, I think in the world of women, so many women have been writing about these things for a, a while, um, but we always have new things to add to the conversation. And um, I've seen some documentaries. There's, um, I'm trying to remember their names. There's some women in, um, 
I think it's Edinburgh and Scotland that have done some research around women in the early church. And I've seen some of their documentary and like going into these catacombs and seeing images that we hadn't known about before. And it gives this whole story and it's so intriguing. There's a lot to discover right now. There certainly is. And you bring in not just from the New Testament and authors that look at the early church, but you've got classicists that are writing on this. You've got art historians that are writing on this. So it's very interdisciplinary, which is exciting. And that, I think, again, increases our our knowledge. And, and what we find is that women were very active in the formation of Christian theology, Christian worship and liturgy, uh, just the whole enterprise of being Christian was not something that was just done by bishops and councils. Um, Women had a tremendous role to play. And that's exciting. It's exciting to to know the history, because I think if you if you know that uh, it helps you today kind of find your way a little bit easier. Um, Yeah, it I certainly was raised um, by parents who felt women can do whatever they want. Uh, just go for it. You know, I wasn't raised in a real conservative environment. Um, and I'm grateful for that because I don't think I carry some of the baggage that some of my colleagues and students do where they, there just wasn't a vision of what women can contribute. But we find mm-hmm. the historical record shows yeah, women have been doing this since the time of Jesus, and and certainly from the Old Testament perspective, lots of active Israelite women uh, helping the people of God be faithful. It's so true. I mean, I think so much of it is the lens. I hear your story quite often, women who are um, pastors, priests, scholars of New Testament and Old Testament, all of it who have a story that they were raised in a tradition where they saw their person um, they saw a woman who led and did all the things and that there was no lid on what, how women could lead. And, um, and it was normal. And I think that's so much easier to go into a field like yours when you've had those experiences. Um, but um, whether you have, or you haven't, the opportunities are there. And I think the work that you're doing is so important because I, um, you know, I've had Southern Baptist men, friends, good friends say things to me like, um, you know, but 2000 years of church history, women haven't really been pastors and leading. Right. Um, and that's a big debate right now in the Southern Baptist convention, right? We've had stories where Saddleback Church was recently kicked out because, um, uh, Rick Warren had ordained those three women before he left. And now, um, Stacy Wood is one of the pastors. She used to be a friend of mine. Um, and then at the same time, the conversation often doesn't focus on the very true reality that we have evidence. I mean, we have gravestones, for example, where you can find out this woman did this particular role in a church. Like those things have always been there, but the curiosity hasn't been there. So, um, in your work, as you have discovered things, was there ever a moment that was maybe shocking or surprising when you found out something a woman did in church history, um, or, or were you just always aware women did all the things? <laughs> no, no. I think I, I I've been shocked. Uh, yes, I've been shocked <laughs> at finding things, um, and I, and I think one of um, perhaps broadly speaking, one of the most shocking is the recognition that um, we often read back into history, 
our own presuppositions about what counts as leadership. And we so often today attach leadership with office titles. And Mm -hmm. in the first century um, Jewish world from which Christianity emerged, um, you know, the synagogue was uh, quite a, a, I'm going to say egalitarian, and I don't mean that in the contemporary kind. I mean, it, it like they didn't have a hierarchy. Let me put it that way. There really mm-hmm. wasn't a strong hierarchy. And there was a strong emphasis on patronage. Now, patronage isn't all good. And maybe that would be a second surprise, I would say, is when I was writing my book on women in the world of the earliest Christians, and I was trying to wrestle with finding all this evidence of women doing all kinds of public events and having their their word or their voice count in these community um, gatherings or, or just they're out there. Like the, you know, there's statues of women everywhere in the marketplace and in the temples and trying to match that with some of the language from the ancient philosophers and, and whatnot, that women are always to be at home and they're to be silent. And I, I couldn't put this together until... Uh, I read more about the um, ancient practice of patronage. I mean, we also have patronage today, but in the ancient world, that patronage allowed for women to be like the mother of a city or the sponsor of a guild, like the clothes washing guild or, you know, other guilds like that. Um, we have a woman, Eumachia, who, who created... Um, was very much uh, involved in the Fullers, which did a lot. They're like dry cleaners in the ancient world and clothes makers and that kind of thing. Um, we still have her uh, her statue remains. And, and so I realized in certain contexts and with certain, in certain parameters, women were very vocal and they were known as themselves, not simply as the wife of or mother of or daughter of. Mm-hmm but the, you know, in and of themselves. I would say another surprise, and it goes along with patronage, is that women often controlled their own wealth. So it's not like the Victorian period when a woman married and then all of her wealth was handed over to her husband. In the ancient world, when a woman married, most of the time she actually remained connected with her husband's family, I'm sorry, with her birth family, with her father's family. She didn't join her husband's family, so to speak. So although she brought a dowry, if they had any money, she brought a dowry and her husband could use that dowry. If he divorced her or she separated from him, she was due back all the principal of that dowry. So if he, you know, uh, bet on the chariot races and won a lot, he could keep his winnings. But if he lost... And then the marriage uh, was ended. She was owed back all the principal, even if he had lost some of it uh, to the ponies. So um, so that meant that women had, uh, they had, uh, maybe leverage is too strong of a word, but they had some independence. Now, not they couldn't execute documents on their own in court. They had to have a guardian that would sign for them. But we have court records that show it wasn't always their husband. 
um, often a family member, but not always, that signed for them. So, I mean, just finding these things, you think there was actually independent actions taken by certain women, especially women who had wealth. Um, and that and that kind of, that gave texture to the landscape in the ancient world that, yeah, women were doing a lot more. They were also still sexism, patriarchy. <laughs> Absolutely. But there was also initiative and agency. And that's exciting because then we can see uh, women like Mary Magdalene, who sponsored Jesus, and also in a very different analogy with Ananias and Sapphira. They both mm-hmm. planned to lie about how much money they were given to giving to the church, and they both paid the penalty for it. Yeah. You know, and so uh, yeah, it, it when you when you start to investigate closely, wow, it's just an incredibly variegated. Mm-hmm landscape which is fun it is fun those are that is surprising about the dowry I didn't know that so that's a fun fact um I think so much of it is the lens you've been given and I'm sure this is something you you think about and teach about but um I think Dr. Barr often gets the question like why are you rewriting history and putting women in it and she's like no I'm not they've always been there we're just noticing them and we're digging deeper into what all the nuances were surrounding them you know um, I mean, when I was in seminary, you know, we learned exegesis and if, a, if a passage is confusing, then you stay curious and you want it to, you want to look at the whole of scripture, but also cultural exegesis is, is really important. And so understanding the nuances of culture and, um, with the, you know, information we have now, sometimes you revisit things was as you were writing this, um, second edition along with many, I mean, Dr. McKnight and Dr. Gupta, Dictionary of Paul and his letters, what are some sort of new insights um, that you started to include or um, or brought into it? I know there's a, several new things, but what are some of the ones you wanted to highlight? Right. Well, I think um, perspective made a big difference. So we wanted to talk about interpretation, like how did Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you uh, state it, um, how he interpreted Paul is very, very influential in the Western church. How, uh, what, what's the history of interpretation in the African-American community and in uh, the modern European uh, community? In other words, it wasn't just perspective as though these minoritized voices are going to stay that way, but a recognition that everyone, including Reformation authors and uh German authors of the 18th and 19th century, everybody comes from a perspective. There's no completely neutral reading, which then invites us to gather as a, as a community and learn from each other, you know, and that, that, so I think the dictionary of Paul and his letters, second edition, uh, pushes into that reality. One of the key goals that we had was that we would uh, really open up the historical world of Paul. Um, and because the historical world of Paul is uh, very pluralistic, I mean, we think of, you know, Jews and Gentiles as sort of binary opposites, but actually it's much more complex as you as you look into how people experienced paganism and and there's also a diversity within Judaism as well. And so trying to take that complexity and, and 
uh, have that be recognized in the um, in the dictionary entries was a key value that we had. I love that, that you brought that in. It's so important. And we can get so narrow sometimes in <laughs> our Christianity. There's a vast ocean to swim in, is something I often say. And sometimes you're taught you're a little part of the ocean. and But it's no, it's so deep and wide and scary at times. And it can be a little dark without some sunshine if you get too deep. But it's vast. And the Orthodox Christianity throughout 2,000 years has had so much nuance um, and I, I think the more we lean into that, the better we understand. But some, it, it can be scary for some people. I love that you brought in more women and more people of color into this edition. How did that process go for you? And what were some of the insights you gained from it? Right. Yeah. Well, I think from the very beginning, and I was looking back in preparation for our podcast, we met in September 2018. Um, we started talking about when we were going to be meeting uh, in June of 2018. And at that first meeting in September, it was two days. I remember we had, we probably cut down a whole forest and post-it notes and they were everywhere in our <laughs> whiteboard and just thinking always, always, as we looked at names we had, are we uh, gathering up all of the uh, names that we know of, of women and scholars in the majority world, um, scholars of, from underrepresented groups. I mean, and so that became, that, that was always in the forefront. We were always, um, always asking ourselves that, that question. And what's so wonderful, uh, to me now, and I've been in the academy just a couple of decades, but long enough to be excited about the fact that we could find top-notch scholars who are women, who are African-American, who are like we're uh, in your past living over in, in Singapore or in Latin America, or I mean, just around the globe. So the uh, I, I don't know if um, younger listeners today would experience this, but I know in the eighties when I was doing my, uh, school, uh, classwork for my PhD and even into the nineties, people would say, you know, I'd love to have a woman contribute, but there just aren't any good experts around. Oh, that would be so mm -hmm. infuriating to me. I think, yeah. well, look harder or, or mm -hmm. help them up so that they can get to that level. Right. Well, and right. now here we are in 2023, and feel very fortunate, we were able to, uh, to have a rich array of top-notch scholars who also represent um, the, the study of Christianity from around the globe and men and women. Huh, it's so wonderful to hear. And it's I mean, the, the sad reality is there are still some circles that would make that comment even in 2023, that there's no women to contribute. And it's mostly like because they're not listening, they're not looking. I mean, I did come from circles previously where 
white male theologians were all that are being read regularly in certain seminaries, regularly as men prepare for sermons in complementarian spaces, especially hyper-complementarian spaces where women are not considered able to teach, which means write the books that they might read and, and all of it. So that does still exist in certain circles. How do you navigate through that type of thing? I know you've been in a largely egalitarian seminary with some nuance thrown in there, but how have you navigated those circles personally? Right. Yeah. Well, um, so one advantage I have, I have to thank my parents for not putting an E at the end of my name, Lynn. It is also (laughs) how men spell Lynn. And so I have been confused from a, uh, a confused with being a male writer when people just look at uh, the name. And I was doing uh, years ago, I was part of a panel discussion at a conference and the person who was convening it was organizing the various participants and we got everything organized of who was going to do what, present on this or that. When we got to the conference and I introduced myself, that the convener kind of did a, well, he made some uh he jolted a little bit. And then that was it, right? So after the panel discussion, he said to me, you know, I didn't realize that you were female. (laughs) We were uh, discussing amongst ourselves for several months before the conference, you know, who's going to do what? I never knew that you were a woman. And, you know, I'm grateful that when he actually met me, he thought, oh, that's a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, you know, that that part was nice. Um, But he then went on to say, did I say anything wrong? Like, did I offend you at all? And I thought, no, not at all. I mean, it never occurred to me that he didn't know I was female. We were five or six New Testament scholars talking about New Testament questions, getting ready to do a discussion about a New Testament topic. So you didn't need to think of me primarily as male or female. I was your colleague. Right. And in this case, this person just had never worked with female colleagues. Um, So that's kind of a funny story um, that, you know, I like to share because it, it, no harm, no foul. Uh, But that there are others that, you know, of course are not, don't end quite, uh, quite as well with that. Um, Yeah. So I, I, I think one of the ways that um, I've always been interested in women in the uh, in the church. I've also, uh, uh, from the time my graduate work, been interested in Jews and Christians in the early church, the first century and early church. And I wrote on that area. I was advised not to write on women in the church until after I had tenure because it was too niche of a project focus. It would put me in kind of a career cul-de-sac of being just an expert on women as though that was a secondary or boutique kind of interest. I love writing on the New Testament. So it wasn't a problem for me to do that necessarily. What I think is that now in scholarship, there's a recognition that in fact, studying 
particular questions around how women engaged the gospel is not actually a unique or uh, uh, idiosyncratic interest, but can actually use the latest methodology and show the uh, best scholarship possible, even with the subject being women. So I'm encouraged by that. Uh, by that change in the broader scholarship. But to your point earlier, Lori, there are still areas where, depending on where a woman would want to work, I might caution to stick stick with the biblical text or something of more broad interest for your first book, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then go into women if you want, but establish yourself first um, so that you're not you know, put in a career cul-de-sac. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just the reality that we still swim in patriarchy, don't we? Just like people in the scriptures we're reading about did. And so, um, when it's the air we all breathe, we, yeah, it's not fair, but it's just, it's how it is. And we have to give each other that kind of advice. And I would say I, both in my, when I was in full-time paid ministry and now working in business, um, you know, women talking to each other and giving each other advice has been really helpful for me. I try to be the kind of woman who mentors the younger ones too in these ways. Um, We don't want to have to do that forever. We would love to get to a point where our daughters and our granddaughters are not having to have these women talking conversations where it's just, it's equitable for all. But until we get there, um, the choices we make, we're perceived differently. You know, there's this narrative, women have to work twice as hard as a man to just be at the same level. And whether it's business or working in the church or in academia, sometimes that's hard, but true. Um, which is sad because sometimes women burn out in these executive level or high level positions. And it's sort of, um, it's a bit of a catch 22, right? So how have you navigated sort of that type of thing? Yeah. Well, I think information is really helpful. Another area where we see this a lot is with student evaluations in studies where students take an online class and they never meet the professor to know they never meet them face to face to know whether they're a man or a woman. If, if the students think they have a man professor, they will rate the teaching, the grading, all of it as a better experience than if it's a woman. And it could be a man that is teaching, but if they think it's a woman doing it, they will, they will also grade the man's uh, class as less. So they did some studies where you had a man and a woman teaching uh, four classes total. A man taught two classes, one as himself, a man, but the second one he also taught as himself, but the students thought he was a woman. And the same thing happened with the woman. And you could just see if the students thought they were hearing from a woman, they didn't like it as well. Mm -hmm. And there's a, our culture in general gives less authority to a woman's voice, whether she's an airline pilot or a CFO or CEO or uh, a preacher or a teacher, especially a teacher Mm -hmm. in areas that are predominantly understood to be uh, male, uh, having that male authority, which would be biblical studies for sure and theology. So I think... First of all, kind of recognizing that is important so you don't blame yourself for things that's not your fault. 
Um, mm-hmm. Secondly, educating the people around you. So I've done that quite a bit in my role as administrator um, to let others know, both other faculty members, um, to even highlight it with students, you know, to say, by the way, this is your... You're going to assume I, I will grade you more easily. You're expecting that. You'll come to me first and say, can I have an extension on an assignment before you go to a male uh, professor? Just all of these things, just knowing them, shining the light on them, I think yeah. helps because then students don't want to be like that, right? They, want, they do want to um, have, have an openness to whoever is teaching them. So that's, that's mm-hmm. one thing that, that I like to do. I think um, then uh, also in terms of with women trying to release us and including myself uh, from this idea of being perfect and what I think goes along with the imposter syndrome where if we're not perfect, then we really shouldn't be here and giving ourselves being willing to take risks, even if we know that at times Sometimes these risks won't work out and will quote unquote fail. That those sorts of things I feel are uh, very much a part of men's lives, but are not as much a part of how women are talking about their experience as they grow into adulthood and, and then, you know, into their careers or their volunteer careers, whatever they plan to do in the church. And as they, impact their own communities. Um, I, I, I would love to see more of risk-taking, if you will, because I, I see that as very much a part of the experiences of women in the biblical text that God encourages, right? That God affirms that um, we can step out. You know, we have Peter stepping out of the boat onto the waves uh, as Uh, Jesus calls him, but there are women who also uh, metaphorically step out on waves, a Deborah Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. old Testament or an Esther. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and that we can do that now. Right. So I would love to, to have churches focus on uh, the possibility of women and maybe risk-taking is not the best word, but you kind of get what I'm driving at. I think. No, absolutely. Risk taking is huge. I saw some research recently in the business world around um, some of the women at executive level leaderships that they researched compared to men. The stereotypes we have are that men are the more risk taking, but when it came to executive levels in business, women were taking more risks. And I think that's why they were getting there. Um, And it is maybe that aspect of working twice as hard. They're risking twice as much too. Um, and when it pans out, you know, because we, we have all this information too about when a woman applies for a job, men are considered for their potential automatically and women have to prove themselves and be super overqualified. You know, we still have never had a woman president. Like there's a lot of issues in our culture around our stereotypes and our unconscious bias, right? Around men and women and listening to men's voices versus women's voice, even in podcasting in the United States. Um, 85% of podcast hosts are male and only 15% female. Um, I had and no idea you know, about that. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? Wow. Yeah. I know. I'm always like, wait, they the, they always say one thing we can do is talk. Why can't we? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And actually, even that research turns out to not be true when they research how often men and women talk in mixed spaces. It's equal. The one area 
where if you have a predominantly male group in a, like whether it's a church staff meeting or business, um, if there's only like, I think less than 30% women or something like that, women talk less, um, but not more. And the stereotype is just absolutely incorrect. Um, and they can trace it back to where it sort of came from, which I won't mention here because we won't throw that person under the bus, but, um, but yeah, definitely there's a lot to think through. And I think, as you said, just mentioning that, raising awareness about it helps us to, I have those stereotypes too, just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I've not had those same thoughts, right? So it helps all of us to get better. And it is inspiring as we read about women, um, in the scriptures that can be inspiring. You know, Paul gets a bad reputation, in some circles, um, you know, until I read Cynthia Long Westfall's book, Paul and Gender, I think it's it trying to, you know, switch things for a lot of us. But um, yeah. And so as you have written about Paul in light of women and, and different things, how do you explain when people ask you, um, how would you describe Paul's view of women? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a fun story here. Um, I'll often get asked, what do you think of First Timothy 2? Like yes. right out of the gate, right? So mm -hmm. I was being interviewed for a job. Actually, it, it was at Wheaton College. I'll just say it, 1999. And I was interviewed by all men because there were just only men in the um, department at that time. And one of the men, at, we were going along, the conversation was, you know, going along as you'd imagine in an interview. And then one of them said, so what do you think of... First Timothy two, that women should be silent. And I didn't say anything. <laughs> and I know I, I just, you know, was, uh, hit a home run or go home was kind of what I was perhaps thinking at the time. Finally, another guy started chuckling around the table and they realized, yeah, well, you just told me <laughs> I shouldn't talk. Anyway, then I proceeded to give my uh, analysis, but I thought, you know, it just sort of, uh, even a couple of, in, in the last two years or so, someone has also, a man has also, you know, said, so I'm sure you have to wrestle with one Tim too. And I thought, you know, where I start, I actually don't start there. I start with Phoebe and Junia and Yodia and Syntyche and Nympha and, and Priscilla. That's where I start. And I assume that Paul is a consistent man that he doesn't say one thing and do another. And so if he is working closely with these women as his co-workers, if he praises Junia as an apostle, as someone who he admires, who is in the Lord uh, and is currently in prison, which was a horrific experience for men and then was way worse for women given their vulnerability, uh, you know, and he praises her testimony, her actions. I think then he can't possibly assume that she just did everything by sign language, you know, that she didn't right. speak, right? <laughs> or that uh, Priscilla didn't actually teach Apollos. I mean, Luke tells us that she did. She did so with her husband, but there's no, there's no sense in the text that she just stood by, you know, as to, to look up stuff for her husband as he was uh, teaching Apollos. She was right there. Um, you know, with Phoebe, 
most scholars believe she took the letter of Romans to the Romans. And if she acted as though most letter carriers did, um, as those who, as those who were, um, were responsible to read the letter and answer questions, then Phoebe's the first exegete of Romans. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just remarkable. So if Paul was doing all that, then it's incumbent upon me to look at a passage like 1 Tim 2 and say, what is going on here? We know that Paul writes letters to address specific circumstances. And often those circumstances are perennial problems, like in Ephesus with Timothy. There were heretical teacher, teachers and also teachings floating around. And Paul, from right out of the gate in the first opening verses, is cautioning Timothy against this kind of bad teaching, not just by women, but by men and women all the way through. Well, that means, you know, we, we can take Paul's teaching even today and be uh, on the lookout for problematic teachings in our church, teachings that come from a man's mouth and come from a woman's mouth. But in the ancient world, there were different ways that education was done. And you know that's true in your uh, living around the world. Not everyone does the American experience of kids from up till 18 years old being in the same, men and women being in the same classroom. Uh, education of women is a very problematic idea in a number of cultures, even today around the world. Yeah. When we lived in Kenya, that was certainly true. Certain tribes uh, were more reluctant to have women in their 14, 15, 16 in school uh, because of concerns of morality, uh, sexual morality mm -hmm. for uh, the, the young girls. So I think Paul's one, one Tim two passage where Paul insists that women must learn um, is, is inviting Timothy to be creative about how he's going to teach women because he's, it's not going to be as easy as him just showing up at a house with a couple of guys and reviewing scripture with them, right? He's going to have to really think hard about how he's going to, he's going to manage that. And certainly in Ephesus where they, uh, they look out onto one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Artemis and how important uh, Artemis and her teachings or the beliefs about Artemis, I should say, were in, in that world. So, you know, we, that I, I come to one Tim two from an historical standpoint, from a standpoint that looks at all the other engagement Paul has with women in leadership and teaching roles. And I say, okay, now how do I make sense of this passage? And, uh, and, and I think it can make sense. I think um, it, it is an important um, caution that the church not allow either men or women to teach falsehoods. Uh, but that's what I think is going on there. Yeah. I mean, there's been so many ways to interpret that passage. And 
Um, certainly cherry picking it out of the context of the scripture has not been a helpful one, <laughs> not one we would advise. Um, <clears throat> a little bit tongue in cheek sometimes when people ask me that, I just say, well, at what age does a woman have to be silent? And what does silent mean? Can she not sing? Are we not allowed to sing hymns? And like, is a baby girl allowed to cry in the nursery? I mean, are we allowed to shush our children in the row? Like, you know, when you just stay really curious about all the parts, sometimes it just sort of blows the whole thing into like, oh, let's really be curious about all of it, right? What do these words actually mean? Digging into the to the word itself, what was going on? Was it one woman? Was it a yeah. particular woman? Yeah. Was it, was she over, what kind of a, like, you know, authentic is this word that's not really well understood. Like so much of it, like once you start digging, you realize people say scripture is clear around this verse and yet less is clear the more you dig. And that's not bad. It just, that curiosity shows us the beauty of the layers of scripture that can keep us learning and growing and trying to understand what this ancient text has for us today. And I appreciate that you've done this work for so long. It's great work. We've learned so much from you and this um, can I have the, can I just, on my shelf. can I just, uh, uh, joke with you also, I will say, uh, in one Tim two fifteen, she will be saved through childbearing. I oh, say, yeah. which, and it's the verb that we usually translate in the context. It has a semantic range for Paul, usually of salvation, like what we think of salvation. So I just tell, yeah. I tell my students, you know, that's why I had two kids. Now I'm saved. Like I'm double saved. You know, and of course they laugh and roll their eyes and they know that that's not what Paul means. But, but, you know, in a way, I mean, Artis, Artemis was the God, the uh, a midwife yep. God. And uh, so maybe Paul is saying, look, trust Jesus, even in this most right. scary time, because lots and lots of women died in childbirth and, um, complications after yeah. childbirth. But anyway, I just say, yeah, to your point, it's like, oh, good. You know, I have two kids. I'm saved. Like I, You're good. I'm good. I'm walking straight into those pearly gates. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. I mean, the more I started to understand Artemis of the Ephesians and the way women were trusting her in childbirth, that verse began to make complete sense all of a sudden. It was always kind of this weird, I don't know what's going on there, but I, I wasn't hearing altar calls like, do you want to get saved by childbearing? Nobody does that, right? <clears throat> so it had to have meant something else, but it really until I understood people were looking to her to be saved as they were being bearing children. Of course, God's the one that has the power to, you know, like it, it all made more sense. But I do just want to say, Everyone get this book. Obviously, I've not read it cover to cover because it's a dictionary, but I'm so glad to have it as a resource. And I hope that um, people will pick it up and use it for whether you're a person who prepares sermons or writes or just um, is curious to know more. This is a great resource that you've provided for us. Um, I know there's a lot of probably Northern Seminary students that are going to end up listening to this. And there's just a lot been swirling around the campus with students and the board and people leaving, you leaving. There's just a lot of feelings going on. And I know that you really love that place. So um, yeah, as you finish out, is there anything you would like to say to the students or the faculty at Northern about your time there? Well, it, it is a, a gift. They've given me a gift of uh, incredible camaraderie, um, joy, uh, and, and intellectual stimulation that I will greatly miss, but also greatly treasure. Oh, that's very special. They were so uh, blessed to have you. I remember when I saw that you were going to be going there and 
um, I just thought, wow, what a win for Northern. You're just, um, you're an asset wherever you go. So thanks for being on the show today. We're going to have you stick around and talk to our Patreon supporters. This was one little extra question here, but um, how can people find you and your writing as um, you go forward? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I do have a web page. I think it's uh, Lynn H. Koick. I think, I mean, okay. my husband does that you are realizing right now that I am a total Luddite. <laughs> I don't do, I'm not on Twitter. I don't really do Facebook at all. Uh, yeah, I'm just really bad on that. But people can email me at lynn.coic at gmail. So that's an easy way yeah. to, to get a yeah. get a hold of me. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from Great. anybody. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. We'll link your website in the show notes so people can follow your writing there. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today and best of everything as you move to Texas and spread some more joy down there. Maybe you'll enjoy that weather and maybe you'll still get up to the North to get a snow for Christmas at some point. Hopefully you don't have to give that up completely. (laughs) Thank you so much, Lori. I loved our conversation. Me too. Bye then. Well, Dr. Kohick is such a scholar Um, She brings so much insight into her writing and her teaching. It was such an honor to have her on the show today. It's uh, very sad, some of the things that have been, you know, happening there at Northern Seminary, but we're so excited for her as she's going to Texas and will bring her knowledge and wisdom and many, many years of experience to the classroom there. And we look forward to more of her writing that we always learn from. Um, And if you've ever had a chance to hear her speak in a seminar or in a classroom or anything, she's also just very knowledgeable and um, brings a deep love for the scriptures and um, all of her scholarship into the way that she speaks. So I hope you do get a chance to hear her outside of just this podcast. So look her up. There's some videos of her out there of her different um, academic talks that she's given and classes that she's offered. Also, um, yeah, we just wish everyone at Northern Seminary the best. We know this is a difficult time and we know that some of the decisions going forward to make things more healthy for students and staff at Northern Seminary is super important. And um, we know that there's an interim uh, situation happening. We just hope that the board and the decisions that are made going forward are structured in such a way as to prevent any kind of bullying and and that type of situation going forward. It's really um, so sad to see a a seminary that is known to be a safe place um, and a haven for so many who've experienced difficult things and maybe their churches and other places that are faith-based and also known as um, egalitarian to have so many women coming out and experiencing bullying. And so we just hope that going forward, the decisions that are made are ones that are going to set Northern up for a healthy environment and that whatever third party or whatever um, structures can be rethought through and revamped in order to make that happen. That's our prayer and our hope. And we know that many of the students are actively um, asking for that. And so for all of those who've had to leave the board and leave um, their teaching positions there um, as a result of this, we are just heartbroken with you, but we wish all of you the best and our hopes are for things to be structured in a healthier way for everybody at Northern. And of course, we wish Dr. Kohick the very best as she moves to Texas to a little bit of warmer weather. And um, we know that we'll be hearing great things from her as she's there. So we uh, just continue to have this podcast out here for each of you to bring in your voices to make a difference together. Sometimes things are difficult. Sometimes things 
um, can be pretty straightforward, but whether it's complex as an issue or something that really needs deep thought and a lot of voices around the conversation, that's, we're here for all of it. And so thank you for showing up and listening today. I uh, got to ask Dr. Kohik another question in our time together after this, where I have an exclusive interview for any of you who are patrons of the podcast. And thank you to each of you who give monthly support to this podcast as a way of saying thank you, Um, whether you're uh, at the lowest level, which is $5 a month or any of the higher levels, everybody gets access to our exclusive interviews that have Um, ever been posted there. So not just this one, but all the previous ones that we've done. And in this one, I get a chance to ask Dr. Kohik just to sort of process a little bit about how um, some of that suffering and pain has been in her process uh, very recently, um, which was going on during the period of Lent. So she talks about um, how she spent the period of Lent this past year and Ash Wednesday all the way to Good Friday and the Resurrection Sunday. And what was going on in her life personally and how some of her um, practices of just her own spiritual walk and her own spiritual disciplines kind of kept her grounded in a season that was very um, unexpected and, and hard. And so she gives some great wisdom there. And I was really blessed by that conversation. It really touched me deeply. And I was just so glad that she was able to to sort of vulnerably share about what that experience was like for her. So um, we'd love to have you show up there and hear about what she has to say because she not only is a scholar, but she's somebody who's deeply spiritual and her spiritual wisdom um, as somebody who's walked further down this road than I have really blessed me both in our interview here that we've shared today and also as we dug a little deeper in the Patreon exclusive interview. So to all of you difference makers out there, thank you for listening. Thank you for showing up today. And if this is a podcast that you think might bless someone else, please share it with them. And whatever your faith background is, or if you don't have a faith background at all, um, all of you are welcome to just contribute to this conversation. So show up on social media, let us know what you think. And um, you can always reach out to me on Twitter and say, hey, um, had this question after I heard that, or this is something that that podcast uh, brought to mind for me. I really enjoy hearing each of your perspectives. It's kind of the whole point of this podcast. So (laughs) please share them with me. I always welcome that. And once again, thanks for making a difference wherever you are. And I hope that you have a great week. We'll talk again next week. Bye everyone. As we're finishing this episode, if you're thinking, I really wish I could learn more or go a little bit deeper. Well, that's what our Difference Maker community is for. I would love to welcome you in to join the rest of us there. Once again, um, it's only $5 a month to join. The price of a latte at your local coffee shop, you can join at our Changers tier. Difference Makers is a community that really means so much to me. It's very special because each time I have a guest on the show, I record something um, outside of what we give to just the regular podcast audience where we go a little bit deeper and then I post those video episodes in this community and we can discuss them. But also at the very uh, beginning tier, which is our changers tier of this community, you'll get exclusive voting power and help pick podcast topics that give us you know, more of what we want from your perspective. You'll have access to exclusive um, 30 
plus mini-sodes that aren't out there for the general public. And you'll get every month an exclusive monthly bonus mini-sode. At our Groundbreakers level, which is $10 a month, you can join and get all of that, but also priority access to submit questions to the podcast. And you'll get an additional two exclusive monthly bonus mini-sodes. And at our Trailblazers tier, which is $15 a month, the price of three lattes a month, um, you can get all of that plus also three exclusive monthly bonus minisodes um, and a patron shout out. So I would love for you to join us at any of those tiers. Um, it'll help you come into this community, be in the midst of all of us, other difference makers. And we'd love to hear your perspective. I certainly would. It's a place to engage more with me and the audience around what you like, what you're resonating with. And once again, go deeper with each of our guests. So please join us in this membership community. I would love to hear your perspective and love to share this extra content with you. So show up at patreon.com slash a world of difference.